1: The High Center Studios of Messiah College's Intellectual Think Tank in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author, and award winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 29
2: of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. We have a fascinating episode planned for you today. Our guest is Nancy McLean. She is the William H. Chaffee Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University and the author of a very interesting book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. I should also add that Democracy in Change is currently one of five finalists for the National Book Award. I'm trying to think here, Drew. Have we ever have we ever had a national book award finalist on the show?
1: Well, it depend depends on how you define the word finalist. We got okay. we got close. So we did have Manisha Sinha of the University of Connecticut right. on on that's the right. show, and and she was a long list finalist. I think uh, it was like ten. right? Yeah. she made the final ten. And yeah. I, and in my humble opinion, I think she should have made the yeah. That's the, another the, great yeah, book. The, yeah. the, the and final we have slip. great
2: guests here on the way of Approval League's home podcast. Don't Abs- we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's the Slaves' Cause: A History of Abolition. Right. Uh, so make sure to. Go back and hear that episode if you're interested. But we also can't forget, we have had a Pulitzer Prize winner on the show. That's right. That's episode eight with Harvard's Annette Gordon-Reed. Um, and, and she was joined with, with by Peter Onuf, another right. just fabulous- They had a new book out on Jefferson at the time. Yeah. yeah, another fabulous historian. And we also had a Bancroft Prize winner on the program, and that was Nancy Toms in episode 22. And we had her on the show to talk about uh, her book, Remaking the American Patient: How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. And we also got to hear some great jokes about a young uh, <laughs> whippersnapper <laughs> grad student because she was one of your uh, your advisors there. That at, was another, in grad school. They were they were all just great interviews. Oh yeah, all three of those interviews. Go back and listen
2: to them. Yeah, that's right, Drew. And if all goes well. We're hoping to line up a few more National Book Award finalists in the near future. So stay tuned, keep your fingers crossed. We're hoping everything goes well. Remember, these people have like agents and publicists and so forth. So, you know, it takes a lot of work to get these people on the air. And speaking of the work it takes to produce this podcast, I think it might be a good time, Drew, to talk a little bit about how our listeners, you out there, can help us to bring quality history podcasting to the public so so give us your give us your spiel yeah
1: absolutely well you know i i we shared in a previous episode that a lot of kind of the fundraising that we're doing is is going towards sound quality and 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 then actually the wonderful work that our studio producer josh lowry does behind the glass helping to make us sound as good as we can but another part of that is, is and to be blunt my labor and and the work of of tracking down interviews and setting up all the logistics of getting people on on the phone or over over Skype calls and and that that takes a lot of time and and I love doing it it's a lot of fun I get to meet kind of giants of my field Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't necessarily get to interact with you know I mean there's no other probably no other reason I would ever get to meet Nancy uh, Nancy McLean other than setting up this interview so it's a real it's a real blessing for me and I love to do it but you know, it, it takes time. Yeah. And so we would love to do more. We would love to have interviews like the one we're about to have with Nancy every week and and really continue to, to do this work. Heck, you know, you've said you wanted this to be a, a full-time gig for me. I would love that. Yeah. That would be yeah. fabulous.
2: We got to gig Drew. We got to be able to pay Drew a salary. And then we could come to you every week. Yeah. Hey, why not daily, right? You exactly. know daily. You know, we could, Just... we, could, we could give Josh behind the glass a job. <laughs> You could have a job. You yeah. could have a whole sort of way of improvement leads home kind of uh, empire here, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not. Ki- I'm only half kidding. I, I,
1: I, 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 <laughs> Josh I do. Josh <laughs> is laughing back there. Yeah, yeah. He's but, a senior. He's going to be graduating. He's looking for work. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I mean, that's that's what it takes. It, you know, uh, unfortunately. You, you, you gotta you gotta spend money to make money, I guess. So tell but, us, Drew, how can you help, yeah. how can we help? How can they help? So if, if you are interested in becoming uh, one of our supporters, um, you can either become a regular pledge patron or you can become a one time donor, and it's really easy. You just gotta head over to thewayofimprovement and click support, and that will take you to the Patreon page. Which will give you everything you need to to set up uh set up yourself as a donor. You know we have to thank all of our donors every week because you know we can't do it without them. And we are especially thankful for the support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams, our 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 right. gold sponsors. Right. We are also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. Yeah, and you know we're we're also open to other kind of would would that be fair to say corporate corporate sponsors yeah. I, I, right. You know, if if you missed the episode in which we had the proprietor of Jennings College yeah, Consulting yeah. on the show, you, you big secret. She's my mom. She's not. She's not a corporate bigwig. She's not one of these libertarian uh, billionaires funding funding our think tank. But, uh, you know, we, we love her. We, we love the work she's doing. We think it's important. And we would love to feature anyone who uh, yeah. is doing work that kind of fits in with this ethos of trying to, to expand minds and, and, and get people to talk about important, thoughtful things.
2: Yeah. So head over to the blog and contact us if you're looking, you're interested in partnering with what we do here. And you think that a, a weekly or biweekly plug on the Way of Le- Leads Home podcast might help your business. I want to thank you, too, for all the support that you give us on the podcast. So in a few minutes, we will be chatting with Nancy McLean. As I mentioned, her book, Democracy in Chains, has been out. I think it came out in the summer. And it has been getting a lot of attention since it came out. Again, it really is a book that in many ways defies categorization. Uh, It's a piece of cultural criticism. It's a political polemic. And it's really an American history of free market capitalism, libertarianism, and even race. It has also been quite controversial. Democracy in Chains is getting hammered by those on the right, especially libertarians who think McLean has sacrificed good historical scholarship in exchange for a political hatchet job on pro-capitalist intellectuals, libertarians, and the Koch brothers. So we'll talk a little bit more about the Koch brothers during the interview. There's really little empathy for the subject of her book. Uh, The subject is a Nobel Prize winning libertarian economist named James McGill Buchanan, who apparently inspired billionaire Charles Koch to save capitalism from democracy permanently. That's a quote. Save capitalism from democracy permanently. McLean clearly writes with an agenda, so I'm not sure... Uh, you know, some of you might suggest, might debate whether or not this is actually a history book. We'll see what she says in the interview. I personally think it's a it's a pretty solid history with a uh, you know with a kind of political spin on it. But again, I, I want to ask her how she balances her work as a social critic and political commentator with her work as a historian. And I'm particularly interested in this because I've announced this on the blog, but I'm writing a book about Donald Trump right now, which is going to be both historical and polemical. So, you know, uh, books like Democracy and Chains and so forth, you know, forget the ideology or whatever, uh, that kind of model of of being a publicly engaged historian who speaks uh, with a particular angle to to contemporary events I'm really interested in how McLean kind of navigates that
1: I mean I'm, I'm glad you bring this up and and you know we we're really focused in the interview on talking with McLean about um about you know about the content of her book and we're not you know we're not gonna get too deep into to some of these surrounding controversies but you know have you seen McLean responding to the right-wing criticism Yes, she has. Actually, she's faced a lot of social media harassment,
2: too, from libertarians and others on the right. She also responded to more scholarly and sophisticated criticisms of her work. And the best place to go to see her response and the criticisms are actually coming from both the right and and a few on the left. And she responds to them quite well, I think. I'd encourage you to check out her July 19th, 2017 interview with the Chronicle of Education, uh, you know, you can just Google Nancy McLean responds to her critics, which is the title of the piece, and we'll leave it up to you to decide. But that'll at least that'll at least show some of the, the, the critiques of the book, but it also gives a, a really good sense of, you know, what McLean is trying to do with the book and how she kind of, you know, responds to some of these critics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- as a graduate student or as a historian, you're always going to conferences and you see people debating their work and and responding right. to critics. But when you when you then also have an investment in a very particular and a very hotly debated political question, right? That I feel like that criticism gets amplified, and I, I think it's yeah. I I'm, I remember re- seeing that article even before you know we we knew McLean was going to be on the podcast, and yeah, and, yeah. and and checking that out, and and I think it's a a good a good window into to some of the fights that historians have to get in if they, when, uh, when their work has a particular relevancy. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to the interview. I am pretty confident, John, that you will not join the chorus of critics or supporters, but we'll try to unpack the essence of our argument and let our listeners decide.
2: Yeah, I want to prompt some of our listeners to go out and get the book so that they can decide about her argument for themselves. I'm not a specialist in the 20, history of 20th century American politics or the history of libertarianism, So I don't really think I'm even equipped to offer a scholarly assessment of the book. I will say this, however, it is a page turner and it seems convincing to me in its analysis about the role that big money has played in weakening our democracy. This is the kind of book, Drew, that Bernie Sanders would love. I wonder if he's read it. I don't know. Maybe, you know. You know, we're just talking about how your uh, podcast producer extraordinaire, maybe you should get him on the show and ask him. All
1: right. I'm Bernie, if you're listening, here we you're go. You're always welcome. So, before we hear from Nancy McLean, you have a few things you want to say about libertarianism and the role of history in our democratic life.
2: Six years ago, a fellow at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C., that Nancy McLean writes critically about in her book, Democracy in Chains, asked me if I was willing to submit an essay to one of their online journals on the subject, Tradition in the Modern World. I was surprised when I received the invitation. I am not a libertarian, nor have I ever written anything publicly that might even suggest I embraced libertarianism. For those unfamiliar, libertarianism believe in a world in which all individuals have control over their own lives, and no one is forced to sacrifice his or her values for the benefit of others. Libertarians believe that government does not have the right to order or regulate the lives of people. All humans have personal liberty, often understood as the right to own property, the right to express themselves freely, the right to privacy, the right to have or not have an abortion, the right to their own gender identity, the right to raise a family in the way they see fit, and the right to defend themselves. But most libertarians don't believe that there's any other good use of force. Libertarians believe that a free and competitive market is the best means for allocating resources fairly. Government should not be involved in caring for the environment, controlling energy policy, taxing its citizens, or providing health care, education, or retirement benefits. Even though I disagree with many of the aforementioned libertarian principles, I also believe in intellectual pluralism. If the Cato Institute was willing to have me, then I was willing to write for them. I did warn the editor up front, however, that I would not be offering a libertarian response to the topic... Tradition in the Modern World. Frankly, I'm not even sure what a libertarian response to the phrase Tradition in the Modern World might look like. Here's a taste of what I wrote. It seems to me that before we can think about the role that tradition plays in the modern world, we must have some sense of what we mean by the term. Unfortunately, tradition is a rather slippery term to define. Historian David Lowenthal, in his masterful book, The Past is a Foreign Country, writes, The word's very meaning has changed. Tradition now refers less to how things have always been, and therefore should be done, than to allegedly ancient traits that endow a people with corporate identity. And the tradition nowadays invoked on behalf of earlier ways is seldom alive, more often it signals a sterile reluctance to change. Lowenthal's definition of tradition reminds me of Yaroslav Pelikan's distinction between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition, Pelikan wrote, is the living faith of the dead. Tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are and when we are, and that it is we who have to decide. On the other hand, traditionalism, which Pelican frowns upon, supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time. So all that is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. Tradition will always shape our lives. This is particularly the case in the United States. Tradition plays such a powerful role in American society because our way of life is so tied to progress. The United States was the first nation to be born out of the Enlightenment. Tom Paine called upon American patriots to begin the world anew. Americans have always pursued self-betterment through education and career advancement. They have been willing to fight and die to keep this idea of progress. Often defined by individual liberty and freedom, alive. So, in some respects, we are all libertarians. The ongoing tension between progress and tradition is strongest in places like America. Even as Americans pursue self-betterment and individual pursuits, they also paradoxically long for passion, love, faith, ritual and other kinds of prejudices that we, also, we often associate with tradition. They search for roots as part of their attempts to connect to particular pasts or places. They also cherish unlimited progress, both for themselves and for society, even as they prepare for death. The paradoxes are everywhere. These tensions define the American experience. Tradition is a break, B-R-A-K-E on American progress. Tradition can sometimes make us less free because it bounds us to something beyond ourselves. Traditions, of course, come in many forms. Personal or interior traditions will always play an important part in people's lives. But I am particularly interested as a historian in the civic traditions that help to define our lives together. This is the kind of collective memory described by historian Wilfred McClay when he writes, Communities and nation-states are constituted and sustained by such shared memories, by stories of foundation, conflict, and perseverance. The leap of imagination and faith, from the thinness and unreliability of our individual memory to the richness of collective memory, that is the leap of civilized life. And the discipline of collective memory is the task not only of the historian, but of every one of us. It is unlikely that our traditions will die anytime soon. As historian Gordon Wood has reminded us, tradition may be a worthless sham, its credos fallacious, even perverse, but it will always be essential to fostering, as he puts it, community, identity, and continuity. How will citizens of the United States preserve their storied traditions? Lately, government funding, both at the national and state level, has been cut drastically for historical sites, museums, and other heritage programming. The assault on history, memory, and tradition in America has been severe. Some have said that this is a good thing. Government should not be in the business of preserving local and national traditions. I beg to differ. Traditions are constantly evolving and changing to meet the needs of the people who invoke them. The preservation and reinterpretation of these traditions, whether they conform to the standards of critical historians or not, need support to survive. Do we really want to trust the treasured traditions, stories, and markers of our collective or group identities to a free market? a question that I ask my libertarian friends all the time. While the grand stories of our national identity have a good chance of surviving under such privatization, the local stories that give meaning to everyday life in small places will likely all but disappear, creating nothing short of a cultural holocaust. We all
1: have a responsibility to make sure that this does not happen. Nancy McLean is the William H. Chaffee Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She's also the award-winning scholar and author of the new book, Democracy and Change, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America, which has been shortlisted for the National Book Award. She's also the author of other books, including Freedom is Not Enough, The Opening of the American Workplace, called by the Chicago Tribune Contemporary History at its Best, and Behind the Mask of Chivalry, The Making of the Second Ku Klux Klan, named a New York Times noteworthy book of 1994. We are thrilled today to have
2: with us on the podcast Nancy McLean. She is the William H. Chaffee Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University and the author of a phenomenal book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Uh, Professor McLean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Now, Democracy in Chains um, is about, it's really a history of a Nobel Prize winning economist. And, and it's an exploration using this economist uh, into sort of the roots of American libertarianism. Uh, it's a contemporary assessment of the billionaires who you believe are, are undermining American democracy. Uh, so tell us, how did you, you know, get interested in this topic? Uh, what led you to write this book?
0: Yeah, I actually uh, took a circuitous uh, route to what became the final book. Um, When I started the book, I had never heard of The Economist that you were just speaking of, a man named James McGill Buchanan, nor had I heard of a man named Charles Koch, uh, who has become very well known uh, to many people who are following politics today for the fortune he is investing to transform our our, uh, country's institutions in a libertarian direction. I actually started on quite a Different topic, uh, which was the school shutdowns in Prince Edward County, Virginia. From uh, 1959 to 1964, the County of Prince Edward in Southside, Virginia completely shut down its public school system uh, in protest against the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, from the Supreme Court. Um, When they were being asked to desegregate their local schools, they actually closed down all public education and sent uh, white students off to private segregation academies uh, with tuition support uh, part for at least one of the years uh, provided by the state <clears throat> and left black children with no education whatsoever. Um, you know, first grade through high school, kids just locked out of school for five years. Mm-hmm. And I was deeply moved by that story and uh, by the story of how the American Friends Service Committee uh, tried to help out in that community um, and provide alternative education and get the courts and the government to pay attention. So I actually started researching that story. But researching that story led me to find out that some academic economists, um, extreme free market economists, including Milton Friedman, Mm -hmm. In the uh, foreground, uh, had gotten involved in the the um, this school struggle to push uh, vouchers for private education, knowing how such vouchers would be used in the South, and right. that just really stunned me. So I took off on that. And that led me to Buchanan eventually.
2: Now you tell it, you tell a, a a fascinating story about how you kind of found the Buchanan archives or papers, if you will. Can you just tell us really quick about that experience in, was it a house or the old headquarters of his, of the Cato Institute or something on the campus of George Mason University Yeah. and this kind of serendipitous kind of, you know, you kind of walked into this, this, this pile of papers, right? Tell us a little bit about that story.
0: Yeah, so, uh, so the research that I was doing on Prince Edward, as I said, it was circuitous and, you know, serpentine route, but it eventually led me to this guy Buchanan, and I became more and more interested in him, and, uh, I tried to get access to his private archive at George Mason University, and no one responded, uh, and in 2013, uh, he died, and that September, I finally got access, and it was a research experience unlike anything I had ever um, encountered before as a historian. You know, typically you go into archives and they're very well organized and they have professional staff and they have finding aids and so forth. And this was actually an old mansion on the campus at George Mason University uh, just outside Washington, D.C. And the place was actually called Buchanan House uh, after him. Uh, And it was his working office and center uh, over the years, he was at George Mason. And so it was a big old rambling clabbered house. And it was just stuffed to the gills with filing cabinets (laughs) and with books uh, and offices stuffed with filing cabinets and books. And uh, I actually started research in filing cabinets that were stuffed under the stairwell in a closet
2: (laughs) Uh,
0: and branched out from there until I got to his private office upstairs, which had some really stunning documentation in it.
2: So, so how did they let you in? How'd you get permission to get in there?
0: Well, it's a very funny thing. Uh, I I imagine that they wish that they had paid closer attention now, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because some of these things, some of what I found does not uh, reflect very well on the administration of George Mason University, which, after all, is a public university, but which has for over 25 years now housed a center for a political project led by this billionaire donor, Charles Koch, uh, in collaboration with George Mason University, economics faculty and law faculty at something now, uh, and they now have something called the Mercatus Center, which they okay. use to influence politics nationally and okay. in the States. Uh, and Buchanan was the original uh, reason for that center. He had won a Nobel Prize in economic science for coming up with a new way of uh, understanding government. Um, he, he won that in 1986. And in 1997, Charles Koch began investing significantly in George Mason. Uh, he invested $10 million that year and has since been as their biggest donor. Um, and But, uh, but Buchanan, they, they actually pushed so hard politically that they may have broken the law for nonprofit institutions. Wow. Uh, so there was a big kerfuffle, and Buchanan himself became quite upset and said that he had been, at minimum, exploited. Uh, so he distanced himself from the center. And so Charles Koch and all of the people who became part of his gravy train went off to this new center called the Mercatus Center, and they pretty much left Buchanan uh, in his old, this old rambling house. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's where I found the papers. So the irony, I think, for uh, particularly for an audience that's interested in history, is that these people who have this messianic vision to shape the 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 contemporary and future world. Had so little regard for history that they didn't even think about the incredible archival trail they were leaving behind in this old house as they went off to their fancy new modern center to shape national politics.
2: That's amazing, and you chronicle you chronicle this story in the book. Um, you told us already a little bit about um, James Buchanan, but Drew, you want to you want to add to you had a follow up.
1: Well, yeah. I, the, this is someone who I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with, so I, I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of his, of his biography. Who was um, James McGill Buchanan and tell us especially about his life and his thought and why you think he is so important.
0: Yeah, and I will, uh, share with your listeners that I had never heard of this James McGill Buchanan when yeah. I started this research project, so they shouldn't feel at all, yeah. uh, embarrassed if they haven't. Um, he was not well known outside of the disciplines of economics, uh, political science and law, uh, and the precincts of, of, uh, the right of, you know, people who are in politics and thinking about how to shape government. Um, he was originally from Tennessee. He was born in 1919, uh, grew up on a farm uh, in a small hamlet in Tennessee. His grandfather had actually been a populist governor, a one-time populist governor uh, back in the day. And he uh, went to Middle Tennessee State University for college during the Depression, then went on to serve in the U.S. Navy, then went on to University of Chicago in economics and earned a Ph.D. there in, uh, after the war in 1947. Um, and moved to Virginia, the state of Virginia, just as the state of Virginia was uh, leading the wider South in massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education. And he arrived in the fall of 1956 as that battle was at its head, uh, at climax really, and he set up a new center there for political economy and social philosophy, and there began to develop an alternative way of understanding the modern uh, state modern liberal government as it had evolved in response to citizen pressure uh, from the 1890s forward so it was a quite inventive way of thinking about government uh, but he was also coming up with it just as the white southern elite was feeling panicked about how to defend its power in a newly uh, inclusive democracy
2: now now Buchanan you mentioned was a southerner and I you know, I mm-hmm. I think I get the impression. I got the impression from your book. He wore that kind of degree from Middle T- Middle Tennessee State. He kind of had a chip on his shoulder for most of his life about you know not being a kind of you know from the Northeast or sort of the intellectual mm-hmm. uh, you know world of the Ivy Leagues or something like that. Um, and this seemed his his southernness really seemed to shape his political and his economic ideas. Uh, and you trace this all the way back even to to the kind of uh, roots of. Uh, southern kind of nationalism or race, even back to the 19th century. Like talk about, talk mm-hmm. about Buchanan as a Southerner for, uh, with us for a little bit.
0: Yeah, Buchanan was actually the first U.S. Southerner to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Mm. And he, he actually, at the time that he won, he described it as a victory for the great unwashed. <laughs> Those yeah, were his yeah. words. Uh, so he really did have that chip on his shoulder, as, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, certainly he came of age at a time when, uh, you know, many people in elite um, institutions in the North, um, you know, did have a bias against Southerners, I think you know, if somebody yeah. came in with a deep drawl, you know, for all these guys who were from, you know, whatever, Massachusetts and, right, you know, right. Chicago and New York, you know, they really did have, uh, a kinda, you know, they, they could have condescending attitudes and he felt that. He felt that sting a lot when he was in the Navy in particular and he was passed over, you know, he saw himself as very intelligent and he was intelligent. He had skipped grades. He was going to go on to win a Nobel Prize but he saw himself as being passed over f- by, uh, for these Northeastern elites, as he described it, you know, people had gone to Ivy League e- at Ivy League educations. He said there was even a Rockefeller that he was passed yeah. over for in the Navy. And that became almost his creation story of how he became the person that he was. And he really specialized in the kind of uh, right wing populism that we see on display right. so much in our politics today, right. where he described, you know, he, he 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 was bilious about what he would call the liberal elite and particularly a Northeastern liberal elite that he believed was, you know, um, telling other people how they should live and what they should pay taxes for and so forth. And he really made it his mission to take down people like that in a scholarly way, you know, in an academic way. Right. Um so that was really really important to his self-conception and in doing that he really partook of a deeper uh regional tradition a tradition associated with the vanderbilt ag- agrarians as they're sometimes called the the people who in the 1920s wrote the book I'll take my stand um supporting southern rural life and particularly elevating the Confederacy. Uh, And they had a great animus also against those they understood as the Northeastern elite and a kind of right-wing populist defense of uh, rural people, especially from the South and the Midwest and the West. And so Buchanan, uh, you know, came of age in that milieu. And I think that really shaped the way that he saw his contemporary world.
2: Now you, uh, you have a, a chapter early in the book on the kind of political and philosophical thought of John C. and racial thought of John C. Calhoun, mm-hmm. right? Why start with Calhoun? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you just you just talked about. Um, Buchanan southernness, Right. But what what is yeah. the what is the connection there? Right. I was fascinated by that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm teaching actually I'm teaching the Civil War this semester. So we've been spending a lot of oh, time on Calhoun. So yeah. I'd, I'd love to yeah. I have class tonight. I'd love to take something to the class about the connections <laughs> between Calhoun <laughs> yeah. and modern day libertarianism or something like that.
0: Yes, the Calhoun uh, connection is is almost overdetermined in all of this. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was seeing it myself yeah. in Buchanan's um, critique of democracy and his insistence that the rights of the minority, and he was really defending the rights of the um, uh, wealthy white minority, uh, that those rights be respected. Um, he was writing these things in Virginia at a moment when Calhoun's thought had been revived for the battle against brown versus board of education and the, yeah. the battle against the federal government uh virginia's constitutional grounds for fighting brown was um calhoun's theory of interposition that states had mm-hmm. the right to interpose their authority against the federal government um so so that was all in the air in virginia and even at the university of virginia in charlottesville there were constitutional discussions along these lines yeah. uh when buchanan was starting work there but also uh, I thought it was really interesting when I found that some of his own colleagues later at George Mason University, including Tyler Cohn, who is a a very uh, prominent um, uh, public figure in economics – he has the most popular professional economics blog uh, in the world, I'm told Mm -hmm. – and it's often on, on TV news. But he and another colleague wrote an article uh, drawing attention to the similarity between Buchanan's system of political economy and Calhoun's. And they actually anachronistically called um, uh, Calhoun a precursor to uh, public choice political economy, the, wow. the uh, set of ideas associated with James Buchanan. But interestingly, too, they said that the two thinkers' uh, systems were uh, – Um, and let me get the exact quote, were were alike in their purpose and effects. Uh, And so that fascinated me because it really supported my case that Buchanan was an archly anti-democratic thinker who wanted to put into place a system of what we might think of as property supremacy, yeah. uh, and that is what Calhoun was doing in the early 19th century as a slaveholder himself yeah. who was afraid of the growing power of uh, anti-slavery uh, voters nationwide, and also he was afraid of the power of the right white yeomanry, even in his own State and region who might tax people like Calhoun and other large slaveholders for things like public education and roads, good roads to get their goods to market and so forth. So Calhoun was deeply anti-democratic as was Buchanan. And there are a lot of similarities between uh, the two men's analysis of politics in the U.S. and their prescriptions for how to change those
2: politics. Let's let's pick up on on sort of Buchanan's kind of anti-democracy, right? He was no fan of Mm -hmm. sort of American democracy. Um, you describe it as he, I'm paraphrasing here, and I hope I'm doing it correctly, but you describe it that he came to believe in um, in, a, in a view of liberty, right? As he, he would have called mm-hmm. it liberty, that sort of was intent upon kind of blocking democratic social movements like the civil rights movement, um, trying to, I think you even at one point used the word shackle, or maybe that's, I'm getting that from the title, Democracy mm-hmm. in Chains, Um Mm-hmm. Sh- shackling majority rule at every turn right he's trying to kind of undermine democracy which really i think is what is getting at the sort of central thesis of your book so talk about a little bit more about Buchanan now we saw the Calhoun roots but you know about mm-hmm. Buchanan's kind of political philosophy and why democracy is such a danger or a threat if you will to that to that philosophy
0: Right. So Buchanan approached these questions uh, as a libertarian, uh, and uh, you know, and I, I didn't know much about libertarianism yeah. when I started this book research either. But I've done a deep dive and can sure. report sure. <laughs> to others. Uh, but for libertarians, the the government really only has three legitimate roles, and that uh, those three are to provide for the national defense to uh, ensure the rule of law and to uh, oversee and maintain social order. So that's a pretty limited purview, and that pretty much rules out not only most of what Citizens have called on government to do in the 20th century, but even much of what we called upon it to do you know in earlier periods, yeah, for sure, example, sure. to provide rural mail delivery you know yeah, through yeah. the postal service and things like that all of that is illegitimate from the perspective of a uh, committed libertarian and so Buchanan you know, with those deep moral commitments uh, of a libertarian variety, uh, approached the study of politics with his economics toolkit that he got at the University of Chicago. And what he said, and he developed a school of thought that's broadly called public choice economics, or more restrictively for his variant, is called the Virginia School of Political Economy. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea was what he called the economic analysis of politics. But unlike previous people uh, you know, uh, who had approached politics in an economic way, and you can think of Charles Beard in America right, or right. Karl Marx or others who thought about classes and groups, Buchanan uh, had his approach shaped by his Chicago economics training. And so he said we could only understand actors in public life um, as individuals and that we should see them as no different from individuals who are actors in the marketplace. And in Chicago, uh, you know, economics terms, those individual actors in the marketplace are always rationally seeking their own self-interest. So Buchanan actually stated that it was his mission to tear down the idea of public interest that prevailed in the 1950s in the U.S. when he set to work, because he believed that any ideas like the public interest or the common good would, in a sense, be a mask for majority domination of the minority. And again, in his particular case, the majority he was concerned with was the uh, wealthy taxpayers and corporations uh, who might not agree with what the majority thought it was good to do and yet would be taxed to pay for those purposes. So he invented a whole school of thought about this stuff, which is playing out in our time. And right now, as we speak, you know, with this radical uh, tax bill that's pending in, in Washington. Yeah. Um, based on the idea that um, you shouldn't be taxed for anything that you don't consent to, in his yeah. dream world, you know, if it's if it's, if if, it, if if a public um, uh, policy, a public project, could not achieve universal um, consensus unanimity, in Buchanan's terms, it was coercion. Of some for the interests yeah. of the others.
2: So this is um, so this is kind of like right traditional libertarian thought, right? It's so centered on the individual that to to mm-hmm. to sac that for the individual to sacrifice anything for something outside of his or herself and his or herself's interest is a form of tyranny, right? A coercion, as you put it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Buchanan spoke of some of this in very, very stark terms. He talked about the wealthy taxpayers as prey and wow. about the other citizens as predators. Um, we might at some point come to his reinterpretation of the, uh, what he called the Samaritan's Dilemma, his reinterpretation of um, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he spoke in a very dehumanizing language that would license hostility toward those construed as predators preying on the wealthy taxpayers. So it was really, I have to say, for me, a great challenge to understand these ideas because they were so foreign to me. And I think they'd probably be foreign to most of your listeners because they're really antithetical to every religious tradition in the world, every major religious tradition, right, Um, which thinks about, you know, um, compassion for the poor, for care of the sick, kindness toward the strange. You know, all of these things are at odds with this libertarian, individualistic, you know, almost nihilistic um, uh, sense of, of, you know, the the supreme
2: um, role of of the individual actor. Right. As long as we're here, Nancy, real quick, Mm -hmm. tell, tell us in a nutshell, I think our listeners will be very interested in this, what was Buchanan's, how did Buchanan interpret the parable of the Good Samaritan?
0: Oh, so he said um, he. Uh, I actually pulled open the page because I want to talk about it. But he wrote this piece in uh, 1975. It was called "The Samaritan's Dilemma," and basically he was saying that the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Bible uh, would would lead people astray in the modern world. And he actually said, and I quote, "We may simply be too compassionate for our own well being or f- for that of an orderly and productive free society." And so he went on to he, to say that um uh modern modern man may be unable to uh, protect himself against exploitation from predators of his own species. Um, That's a quote. Uh, So that is absolutely frightening, right? And what it does is actually turn the parable of the Good Samaritan on its head. So instead of the Good Samaritan um, helping a victim of predators, it makes the victim the predator. Uh, And so it's a really, really um, frightening entree to the stark world of libertarian morality uh, and I think really tells us a lot about this cause because since that point in 1975 when he wrote that, that understanding has shaped all of the radical rights yeah. approach to uh, questions of government social provision, whether it was you know uh, what we what tends to be called welfare, AFDC, or yeah. whether now it's Social Security and Medicare. All of that, these libertarians pray, uh, uh, portray in these terms of predators um, taking advantage of prey. And again, the prey being the wealthy and the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... It was quite what, arresting to me to read
2: Yeah, it's just that's fascinating to me because, you know, so, you know, someone's got to do I'm sure I'm sure there's a good book out there on the way in which kind of the, the, the Christian right. Right. The, mm-hmm. the, the moral majority, Jerry Falwell's, those kinds of people of the world at some point um, sort of embraced and adopted this kind of libertarian uh, if you even if it's not an oxymoron to say libertarian ethic, right? <laughs> but but right. Ad, ad, adopted this and and kind of sanctified it. So so now you have like you know you know these cr- so-called Christian leaders, uh, you know you know basically like completely adopting um, you know this kind of libertarian philosophy. So it's, let me let's let's fast forward this a little bit. Yeah, and if I could if ahead. I could yeah. just jump, no, in jump in there too, yeah.
0: yeah. You know, um... I actually watched this evolve in the archives. And, I, you know, I said that the, the project that I was working on, you know, evolved over time and took different directions. But one of the things that really intrigued me was the way in which the right, um, the organized radical right, approached these questions of religious faith and mobilizing churches. And it's really important, I think, for today's listeners to um, uh, to go back and to realize that, you know, when Buchanan was setting to work in the 1950s, the dominant religious voice was a voice of compassion, right, okay. that was um, supportive of workers' efforts to organize themselves into unions to lift their um, wages and working conditions and, you know, um, have more dignity and in, in, in voice in public life. Many mainstream uh, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish activists were involved in supporting the civil rights movement and pushing for uh, reform um, in, in that domain. You know, in the early women's movement, there were many religiously active people. And I saw in the archives. <clears throat> of these republican or i don't mean republican i'm sorry the the um, right wing the conservative and libertarian activists who were trying to reshape the republican party and reshape our institutions they were really alarmed about this liberal and moderate yeah, religious yeah. Presence And so they actually invested significantly uh, in uh, religious institutions of the right, but also in individual thinkers who would reinterpret both Protestant and Catholic tradition in order to make it reconcilable with this, you know, free market, ultra free market kind of thinking. So um, there have been some good books written about it, but I think, you know, many more could be, uh, because it's really an interesting phenomenon of our time. Times. And one thing that, that really moves me is that, you know, I think a lot of ordinary believers don't really understand how these entrepreneurs of the religious right have been using them in a, in a you know, what strikes me as a, a dishonest way. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, for example, Tim Phillips, who's the head of Americans for Prosperity mm-hmm. um, and works with this radical right you know, um, wealthy donors' network to change our institutions. He comes out of the religious right, yeah. but I would get—I would bet that if you, uh, I guess I shouldn't be talking about betting and Christianity in the same breath. But, um, <laughs> But nonetheless, I would, you know, I think if you went to to most um, uh, uh, congregations and asked people if they supported Social Security and Medicare, they would say yes, because yeah, overwhelmingly Americans support those things regardless of party. But what these um, religious right entrepreneurs and the political figures they work with are using the energies of religious voters to do is to undermine Social Security and Medicare, right. among other things, to make it so that we will have to rely on individuals. Individual accounts invested with Wall Street firms, because if you don't have the government, where else do you do it? It would be Wall Street firms uh, instead of having social insurance like Social Security and Medicare. And so, one of the things with my book that I'm trying to alert people to is the the, the extreme cynicism of some of these uh, political entrepreneurs. Sure. You know, some of whom speak in the name of faith, uh, and to alert ordinary believers and voters to what's really really going on um, and and how they may be being used um, to achieve ends that they wouldn't agree with
2: yeah as you were talking I was thinking I don't know how familiar you are with um uh, Kevin Cruz's book on uh, yeah one one mm-hmm. is it one nation under God or something like that yeah where, where he makes this yeah. he makes this exact argument he traces the roots of mm-hmm. these kinds of entrepreneurs businessmen libertarians and Kind of evangelical Christianity, so there, You're right. There's, there is stuff out there on this. Tell us real quick, Nancy. So, I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. this guy Charles Koch. Um, not mm-hmm. many, maybe some of our listeners don't know him. Although, if you're following mm-hmm. politics, right, I think Bernie Sanders, yeah. who who used to reference the Koch brothers in practically every speech, so maybe, maybe people yes. have heard heard uh, heard about uh-huh. them from Sanders. But who was Charles Koch? And, and what is his relationship to Buchanan? Let's kind of bring this story up to the present now and what's actually happening um, you know, with the Koch brothers, with this mm-hmm. massive infusion of money into these kind of libertarian causes.
0: Yes. So Charles Koch is, uh, the CEO of what is now Koch Industries. Um, he inherited that as a small business, relatively small business from his father, uh, Fred Koch, who was a founding member of the John Birch Society, uh, in the late 1950s. Um, and, uh, Charles Koch, uh, is a quite brilliant man, three engineering degrees from MIT. And he made that into one of the largest privately held corporations in the world. It now operates in 60 countries. Uh, in the process, he made himself and his brother very, very rich men. They're worth, um, I think, it's 90 billion between them now. Yeah. So unbelievably, you know, okay. wealthy beyond yeah. most people's capacity to even count the zeros on all that. Sure. Um, but he has been a passionate libertarian uh, since the early 1960s, mid 1960s, and uh, he's a voracious reader. Uh, and he read in all the you know libertarian classics and was involved in the institutions and. And since the late 1960s has been looking for a way for libertarian ideas, which are held by very few people. They represent a very small part of the population for those ideas to break through and somehow manage to reshape our institutions. So beginning in the late 1960s, he, Charles Koch, began investing in thinkers, in intellectuals, in scholars, trying to find the right ideas, as he puts it, the right technology Mm -hmm. to break through, to get this libertarian world that he wants and most Americans and other people around the world don't want. So that's a tough tough nut to crack. Sure. Um, uh, but about 1970, he uh, got to know James Buchanan. Uh, Buchanan helped Charles Koch set up some institutions that your listeners may may be familiar with, the, the biggest being the Cato Institute, right. which is the main libertarian think tank now in the country. Uh, and uh, Buchanan worked with that and other institutions that Koch funded over the years that your listeners may or may not know about, Um, but the two men began to work together more and more uh, after Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in 1986, and in 1997, Charles Koch, uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, but invested his first $10 million in Buchanan center at George Mason University in the belief that Buchanan's ideas were the secret, the technology that would help him square the circle of transparency transforming our institutions in a way that the majority of people do not want. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in a nutshell, some of the ideas that came from Buchanan for how to do that include uh, voter suppression mm-hmm. efforts, right? Buchanan had long said that public employees shouldn't have a right to vote because they'd be voting on their own conditions of employment, Um so uh, voter suppression, uh, extreme gerrymandering to misrepresent the will of the electorate and particularly to overrepresent represent uh, rural, more conservative voters over urban and suburban voters, which is something Buchanan knew well from the Virginia of the 1950s, uh, undermining the power of workers to organize together in labor unions without actually stating that as a goal to the public, but instead engaging in radical rules change to make it impossible possible for labor unions to function, uh, misinforming the public about climate science so that the government would not be pushed to take action on climate science. I mean, it's just yeah. it's really yeah. stunning how the Koch uh, and the Charles Koch and the, he now has convened a network of over 400 uh, very wealthy donors in America who are to the extreme right of even the Republican Party. Um, and they are using these ideas that come from Buchanan to radically change our institutions without alerting voters to what they're actually trying to achieve, <laughs> yeah, to what yeah. the goals and the end game are. And so that's why I felt so urgent about yeah. uh, writing this book too, is to alert people that this is happening and it's happening in a way that, I describe as stealth, um, and people need to know about it while they still have a chance to, uh, become aware of the scale of it and potentially to stop it if they don't agree with it.
2: So, so this sort of Coke Buchanan was kind of a, you know, perfect match, one with the money, one with the ideas, kind of a match made in heaven or maybe a match made Mm -hmm. in hell, depending on your, depending on your perspective, right? Um, you know, yes. you know you know, let me let me pick up uh we have time for one more question. Let me pick up okay. on um let me pick up on something you said at the end of your last response, how you know you saw this connection in the archives mm-hmm. or in the, you know, the papers there in in the house where you were mm-hmm. researching. And and you felt you it was all stealth. You had to you had to do something mm-hmm. about it, right? You had to tell this mm-hmm. story, and that's what democracy and change is really all about. I'm really curious. This is more of a kind of um Pra- pragmatic question about the the role of the historian in society you're obviously trained mm-hmm. as a historian right you have an endowed chair in history at duke um this book clearly uh reveals your sort of instincts right as a historian mm-hmm. but you also don't back away from criticism right and, and we're hearing mm-hmm. some of this even in our interview today of buchanan of coke uh, mm-hmm. of libertarians in general so i'm just really curious as a kind of practitioner Right. How do you strike this balance between historical scholarship and, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of cultural criticism or political commentary? Mm-hmm. Right. How did you how did you kind of work out that, that tension, or maybe it wasn't even a tension at all, uh, in your mind as you as you mm-hmm. approach this project?
0: yeah um well I uh, as you said, you know I've been practicing as a historian for decades now, right, and right. I've proved myself, I think sure, you know sure. with um, uh, some award-winning books and teaching awards and things like that you know I'm a really committed and um, solid scholar, and what I was seeing in the archives really alarmed me yeah. um, and I actually feel that our not feel I believe, on the basis of the evidence I found that our democracy right now is facing existential threat. I think most of of us can see that our, our our political institutions are in crisis right now, particularly in Washington. That yeah. very unusual and abnormal things are going on. And I reached the conclusion that those things are happening uh, because of what I was finding in the archives, as I came to understand Buchanan's thought and Charles Koch's appropriation of it uh, and use of it um, to get a series of institutions. And they're actually, believe it or not, like hundreds of institutions now, if you include also wow. the state-level institutions and the international institutions, uh, pushing for this radical transformation of our society, and particularly our government, and we should say, too, the Constitution, although I guess we don't have time for that. But so this is an extremely radical um, uh, uh, messianic vision for changing our country. And I felt that I would be remiss as a citizen and as a scholar if I did not state that clearly to the American people while we still have time to act. And so I definitely made choices um, in terms of how I wrote this book, and I worked really hard to make it a book that would be accessible to the general reader who is not an academic, who doesn't want to hear about all the academic debates and all the other things that are of interest to those of us in, in higher education. But instead, I wanted to... Let people know uh, where this crisis came from and what the operational strategy and end game are of the people who are pushing so hard to change our institutions. So, you know, I think, you know, the response has certainly been overwhelmingly um, encouraging from readers that I've had and from folks like you on the radio and uh, whatnot. Um, some of the people I wrote about are up in arms about mm-hmm. this. You know, they don't like um, to see the portrayal of of them uh, that they find in the book. But, you know, I, I reported on what I saw in the documents, and I stand by it, and I believe it poses urgent issues for all Americans to consider.
2: And we should add, at the time we are recording this podcast, the book is now one of the, is it three finalists for the National Book Award? Five finalists Five for the finalists National Book Award, for the National yes. Book Award, so be... maybe by the time you're listening to this somewhere down the road, you're driving in your car, would have already won. Right. By that point. right? <laughs> but, but yeah, right now, one of five finalists. So congratulations on that.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This has just been a wonderful discussion.
2: Great. Absolutely. We have been talking with uh, Nancy McLean. She is the William Chaffee Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke and the author of Democracy and Chains, Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Great interview. Thanks so much for taking some time, Nancy.
0: Thanks so much to you guys okay, for having me. I really enjoyed day. it. Have a great day. You too.
1: Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Tell you what, John, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're having this conversation on what is an election day. Obviously, here here in Pennsylvania, it's, it's not a huge one. There are obviously bigger, bigger elections in places like New Jersey. And right. and Virginia, where there are uh, gubernatorial candidates, but I you know I went down and I voted, and and there are some judges and and uh, city council people that were on the ballot for for Harrisburg. But uh, you know, I, it's a day for democracy and for voting, and and this book I think has a lot to say about about what that means.
2: Yeah, controversies controversies about the book aside, I think the book does make a very convincing argument that. Um this big money injection, whether, whether it be directly towards libertarian candidates or not. Right. Although I think there's a strong case to be made that the Koch brothers are up to something here. Right. <laughs> Just read the book. But, um, but, but this injection of big money into the democratic process or into, into American politics, I think dis- is really destroying the democratic process, right. Whether it be, you know, about, you know, libertarianism or some other political party, it takes away the voice of the people.
1: Yeah, I've also chosen, I think, a good day this morning. I was actually right before I went to vote. I was reviewing for my comprehensive exams. One of my one of my books on my list, Sam Willens's "The Rise of American Democracy." That's right, great book. Well, I, a very large book too. <laughs> but um, you know, and and that's kind of what what the book is all about. Is yeah. that it's about how democracy emerged in the early 19th century, and it didn't emerge as some sort of like providential, you know, uh, out of the minds of the of, of the founders. But in fact, it had to be fought for because there are a lot of forces and structures put into place with the American Revolution that were designed to limit democracy and, and what in and democracy as it really is, which is just the the uninhibited will of the people. Yeah. And this gets into sort
2: of all kinds of questions that we don't have time to go into sort of about you about usable pasts. Right. Because if the founding generation is what you're going to build your republic around, then many of those guys, you know, they had no use whatsoever for democracy. Right. Democracy is very much a kind of early 19th century construction. Right. The Uh, You could say you could say the founders sort of put in place, uh, you know, this is the argument of like Gordon Wood and others that the founders put into place ideals that were not consistently applied, but would later be applied to make a more perfect union or to, you know, bring more democracy in. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people in our contemporary political life are invoking the founding fathers to suggest that, you know, well, no, democracy was not what they had in mind and we should not have democracy today either because of that. And this gets into that whole question of, of tradition versus traditionalism right you know like it's almost as if many it's like the original intent view of the constitution right it's like the founding fathers ideas about democracy are somehow frozen in time and all we need to do is tap into that ice box if you will and pull out what they said and just apply them to contemporary life and any historian who believes in kind of change over time is going to sort of bristle at that idea
1: yeah and Actually, if you will allow me, I, I, I have a quotation here from, from Wilentz's preface to, to his book, and I think it's just, it, it's so fortuitous that it kind yeah. of fell in my lap this morning. So this is, this is what Willens writes. Democracy appears when some large number of previously excluded ordinary persons, what the 18th century called the many, secure the power not simply to select their governors, but to oversee the institutions of government as office holders and as citizens free to assemble and criticize those in office. Democracy is never a gift bestowed by benevolent, far-seeing rulers who seek to reinforce their own legitimacy. It must always be fought for by political coalitions that cut across distinctions of wealth, power, and interest. It succeeds and survives only when it is rooted in the lives and expectations of its citizens and continually reinvigorated in each generation." Democratic successes are never irreversible, and I think that gets right to what, what McLean is talking about because I think there is a, at least a large moneyed interest that wants to see fewer people voting, especially fewer people uh, who would tend to vote against their interests and, and, and are going to use their, their, their unequal power to, to uh, either subvert institutions or create new institutions.
2: I think that's a great point to end it, Andrew. Go out and get Nancy
1: McLean's book. Decide
2: for yourself whether her argument is legitimate. Try to read the book with an open mind, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are, no matter what you think of libertarians or the Koch brothers or Bernie Sanders. <laughs> um, but but this book is something I when I saw this book come out, I wanted to talk to Nancy McLean. I wanted to get her take on this. And, you know, as you think about the future of our democracy, I think these are you know, these are, she raises some questions that I think we, we all have to come to grips with at some point. So another show in the, in the books here, Drew, um, we got some other great guests coming on down the road, but in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home.
1: This has been a production of the way of improvement leads home, a blog dedicated to reflections, at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter by following us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Nancy McLean. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew durley hermeling and your host is John Fia.